The Chronic Illness Therapist podcast is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. For specific questions related to your unique circumstances, please contact a licensed medical professional in your state of residence. Emily Klein has been working as a therapist in different group practices in Georgia, treating children, teens, and adults with anxiety, depression, and trauma since 2014. She has volunteered as a child life specialist for Camp Kudzu, a camp for children with type 1 diabetes. She started treating chronic illness patients in 2019 after beginning to notice how emotional distress and mental awareness impacts how we cope with physical health management. She recently started her own practice, specializing in anxiety, depression, and chronic illness for children, adolescents, and adults, and she uses a variety of therapeutic modalities, including mindfulness, CBT, and IFS, internal family systems therapy. Well, I'm glad you're here, Emily. Thank you so much. And let's start off by maybe just telling people, you know, where you practice, how you practice, who you work with, you know, your general kind of um, introduction to you. So my name is Emily Klein. I am an LCSW, I'm a social work, um, licensed clinical social worker, and I practice mental health therapy with people with chronic illnesses, primarily type 1 diabetes patients, but I do offer anxiety and depression as well, um, services to people across the board. And so you don't have to have a chronic illness, but those seem to be the patients that I primarily am flocking towards. Probably because I have a chronic illness myself. Yeah. (laughs) And I work in Sandy Springs and um, yeah, just started my own practice recently. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Um, I must, do you have type one diabetes? So I do. Yeah, I have type one. I've been diagnosed since I was 12. Okay. Um, yeah, we've had, we've actually had a couple of episodes on type one diabetes. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty common. I think it's more common than people realize. I'm shocked by how common it is. Yeah. But just chronic illness in general. There's yeah. over you know, to be an underserved population. Which is really, really yeah, I think it's becoming I think a lot of us therapists are specializing in it more, one, because of our own experiences, but two, over 60% of the country has a chronic illness. And that's just those who are diagnosed. So I work a lot with people who have chronic health issues who are very much 
still trying to figure it out. They don't know what their diagnosis is. They just have a lot of aches and pains or stomach aches or migraines, but they haven't really like gotten a diagnosis yet. Or, or they have a lot of syndromes like fibromyalgia, EDS, things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, over 60% of the population and, and 40% has two or more chronic illnesses. So at some point we will, all of us therapists will have clients with chronic illnesses. And that's really part of the reason why I do this podcast and my consult group and things like that. Yeah. So you practice from something called internal family systems. Um, we have, I don't think we've really, we haven't had a full episode on, I, on IFS um, on this podcast. And I'm really excited because I love IFS. Um, are you trained in all, like all three years? No, I've, I've really only taken the first training. And so I am recognizing more and more how popular it's becoming amongst other working therapists and how effective it is with people, especially with chronic illness, because it does just become a part of you. And so if you are dealing with something, it turns into something that feels like you can't control it. And so IFS has a lot to do with how those parts of you operate within your system. And so it's like a, a little family system in your body, in your brain. But the most important piece of it, I think that I find interesting is that concept of self, that self energy that helps you separate from that part of you. And so that's how I look at illness now as if it's just a part of you, it's not really you, it's not who you are. And you can, you can access that self energy so that you can try to connect with that part of you. And I think a lot of us have these protectors that exist because of that, yeah. that anxiety that takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the parts and like the three parts that we kind of all have and, you know, then maybe how that we can maybe then go into how each part would relate to different um, things that come up within a chronic illness lens. Yeah. I, so what IFS teaches is that we all have these parts within us that are exiles that are kind of like wounded are carrying some burden in some way. And so what happens is we have these other parts that take form that often manifest in the form of anxiety that act as system managers, if you will. And we think of them as protectors because I, I think they're flooding our system with fear, trying to keep us safe, trying to protect us from going to that lonely island that the exile lives on and so if it senses at all that we're getting close to that wound or that pain or that trauma that we've had then it'll flood it'll flood our system with fear and I think the relationship between the two sort of act as like parent-child it's trying to keep them safe in a way but I don't think it always realizes that in doing that, it can create more harm than good because then it keeps us from finding healing. Like we have to learn how
how to live with it, how to cope and maybe even to see what it needs if it can feel better. And so what happens with the protector is that it creates so much stress and so much heat and anxiety that anxiety is like a fire basically. And so we talk about this other part that exists that takes over that's referred to as the firefighter. And so think of an extreme firefighter coming in and just putting out that fire, that anxiety. The manager is telling our system, I cannot function in this way anymore. It is not sustainable. And so the firefighter comes in and tells the system that we can take a little break. Yeah. And so that can manifest in a lot of different ways. For plenty of people, it's substance abuse. It can be especially in cases of trauma, dissociating, isolating socially. It can look like suicidal ideation, depression. It can take on a lot of different forms, eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I'm here, so if I'm hearing you correctly, the exiles are these parts of us that we don't want to feel, basically. And we exile them away and they are, you know, We don't want to feel inferior. We don't want to feel judged or rejected, or we don't want to feel our sadness, or sometimes we don't want to feel our anger. And these are things that we just, we shove down. In other words, we suppress. I think that's a word people know much more commonly is it's the feelings that you suppress because if you felt them, it would be too overwhelming for your system. Is that right about exiles? Yeah, it would be too painful because it's like an open wound that hasn't healed yet. Yeah. Yeah, And our protector knows that, doesn't want us to feel more pain. Why on earth would anyone want to subject themselves to more pain? Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So then our manager is another part that comes in and says, I will do anything to keep you at bay, to keep you down and and not feel you. Um, But then inevitably something happens in life where we do start to feel those exiled emotions or those suppressed emotions And so the firefighter has to come in and say, oh, hold up, I have to put out the fire. Um, But the firefighter doesn't care if it's ruining other, like a firefighter comes in and puts water on everything, picture frames, family heirlooms, like they don't care what they're ruining in the house because they just have to put out the fire. So same thing with this, you know, we might scream and yell and that's our firefighter coming out. You know, we don't want to feel the sadness. So the firefighter comes in you know, it it makes us do things that we don't want to do, but it's the only thing we know how to do to keep that feeling suppressed. Right. I think in terms of illness, it's probably the part of us that avoids or doesn't want to take care because maybe that manager is still overwhelmed with taking care. Yeah because it doesn't want us to feel more pain or it doesn't want us to feel sick or it doesn't want us to feel the trauma that it felt of that memory. If it was a medical experience that was scary or maybe it's a doctor's experience that you don't want to remember or recall or maybe avoid going to the doctor even because there's so much fear around that. So your manager, if it senses danger at all, going to flood our system with fear and that anxiety is natural you have to have it it's based on survival you have to know when you need to feel fear 
and run away or fight or freeze, but I think it doesn't always realize that there's there's not actually danger. That if it were to use that energy in a positive way, that maybe we could we could connect with our exile. We could see what it needs to feel better. And so I imagine these kind of functioning as if it's a family system, you know, we don't always get along. But I think we're all good intentioned. I think we all care about each other. And yeah. we, we have really, we have a sort of roles that we play or take on in that system. Yeah, yeah, which it, that just reminds me of like, Richard Schwartz's newest book, No Bad Parts, because there are no bad parts. The exiles, the firefighters, the managers, they all have a job. And when we are able to feel all of these things with the coping skills that you're talking about, or that you briefly mentioned, it's um, then we can handle feeling those things and then we can move our energy where it needs to go. Exactly. And I think the biggest part of that is just being able to come at these pieces inside of you with compassion. And so that's the whole idea of self-energy, acknowledging these experiences that you're having from a place of non-judgment, from a place that feels safe or calm and clear-headed. And so the self it's all about being able to think rationally about it. And that, that allows you to even be grateful for it, to have gratitude and compassion for what it's trying to do. Because I think in everyone too, there's a little part that's a critic. In every family, I'm sure there's someone pointing a finger that doesn't like another one. And so that could exist. And so we want to be mindful of that too. And Okay, well, how can we feel the most supported by all of these parts of us while also being able to connect with them and to rationalize some of their fears? Yeah, I like what you said earlier about the parent-child interaction because what you're saying right now makes me think of like when these fears pop up, an ideal parent would comfort a child when they have big fears a lot of us didn't grow up with that a lot of us grew up with you know if you have a fear and now you're kind of freaking out as a little kid your parent or your school system or a lot of people in our lives would just do anything to kind of squash that down either say you're okay you're okay don't feel that way or don't cry don't cry or they might get mad when you're freaking out and what we really need is a container to say, hey, um, I know you're freaking out and, and I've got you. And so when we're working with our own parts, we're trying to find that part of us that can, that does have the strength to allow another part to freak out while one part of us is saying, hey, I got you. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So if we can connect with the critical part too, I think we can ask it Hey, can you be non-judgmental right now while I try to have a conversation? And so 
imagine yourself being able to have a little internal conference with whichever part of you that needs your attention at the moment. If it's if it's the protector that won't let you get close to the exile, well then how can I rationalize some of those fears for you? What would you wanna be doing with all of that energy if it wasn't flooding my system with fear? You know, I can understand if it doesn't want to allow me to feel more pain, but maybe if you allow us to get close to that exile, then we can, we could do some good. Maybe we could reframe something, how it felt about that trauma or that pain, you know, how can we think differently about some of the distress that we feel? Uh, when it comes to particularly, so you, you know, you have a lot of experience with type one diabetes. Can you maybe give an example of even like blood sugar going too high or too low and, and um, how that might then, how your parts might show up within that experience? Yeah. Just for example, I think that I'm sure anyone with an illness understands what it feels like to be sick. And so that protector in me floods with fear when my blood sugar is low or high. And so I find myself becoming really scared if it's low, because that's, that's a serious threat to survival. And I know how it felt to be that weak and that's probably my exile doesn't like weakness I think I've gotten to know that part of me the part that feels insecure or that it's not good enough that it can't take care of itself and so the protector tries to almost like show no fear it doesn't want anyone to know. It doesn't tell anyone my, my blood sugar is low. It doesn't advocate. It just kind of sneaks away and tries to correct. And all of the people in my support system have since told me that it doesn't like that about my protector. It wants me to be able to ask for help and to sit down because as you probably know, when your blood sugar is low, you need to rest. You don't need to be doing anything. But I think the trauma that I've endured has resulted in that belief system that there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't tell people I should not be experiencing this in public. That is scary. And so that firefighter as well likes to avoid like avoid checking, avoid taking care. And then I think too, when your blood sugar is high or when you're feeling pain, probably you experience that irritability. And so the protector is almost kind of like fighting people. It's like, get away from me. Like that's when I find the outburst to be the most expressive is when that's happening. I love that explanation. And I'm curious if you can also share how you, what the ideal, the, what it looks like ideally on the other side of that, when you've integrated all three parts and you get through that same experience in a very integrated way. I think the integrated concept for IFS would be to have a greater sense of self. I think it's, IFS is really all about self-love. So to be able to 
come back to me for a moment and just to think about, okay, well, what's happening to me actually? Like if I notice that I'm experiencing an emotion change, what's really going on inside my body right now? What signals are being sent? And so if I can think about this in a rational way, in a loving way, in a way that makes me feel confident, then I can understand that maybe it's not just me, maybe it's my body, maybe it's my physical change that's happening. Maybe it's, maybe it's a blood sugar change. And so now my first response when I'm able to do that is to check the exact opposite of what the firefighter would say, because the anxiety used to be so strong, so scared just to know, just for other people to know that it would, it would avoid. Or conversely, it would obsess. It would go nuts about it and find myself not being able to think about anything but that. Or to be really upset about it and angry. But I think when you're able to ground yourself and to be more present with you, then you can understand why that's happening, why this part of you feels a certain way, why it's wanting to take over. You know, I think of it as wanting to take the wheel of the car. And so I have to imagine myself separating from it and creating space and getting back in the driver's seat. You know, that's that instinct to take a back seat while it's in control. And so I have to take back control. I have to remember that I am good enough to do that because my exile doesn't think that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's tuning in again to your inner parent who can say, I can hold space for your fear so much so that fear no longer has to take over. I can take over. Yeah, it's okay to be afraid. That's natural. But what does it need? Mm-hmm. Does it need validation first and foremost? Does it need then to be challenged? Because it's okay to do that. It's okay to make that change if I want to. And it's okay for me to do what I want and make that choice because I know that I'm worth it. My self-esteem is grounded enough in reality to know that I'm valuable enough to come at this from a place of compassion instead of shame or fear or sadness or anger. Even though all of those emotions are valid, those are all valid experiences. But right now, if I want to be more present, then that's the challenge is to find a place of calm. And so there's times when I have to process those things. I have to have that internal conversation. And so in IFS, that's called direct access, being able to access that part of you from a sense of self and to have that conversation. And then there, as a therapist, you have the ability to have indirect access. So I could communicate through you to that part, or I could communicate directly to that part too, just to understand what it's feeling, to find out more. 
What does it want me to know? Yeah. Why doesn't it want us to get clear? Yeah. I find that when I ask those questions, a lot of my clients will try to respond very quickly, which I think is just so common because we are kind of programmed to respond quickly. And that lets people know, like, we're paying attention or we're smart. Like, these are the things we learn in school. You know, if you don't answer quickly, the teacher's like, oh, you need to pay attention. You weren't paying attention. At least that was my experience growing up. And so you learn to respond very quickly with the right answer. Um, But one of the things that's really important is learning to slow down. And when you ask these questions, like the questions you're asking are great. And in order to really know the answer to them, it really takes time. Takes a, a good pause and the skill of curiosity. Um, and you've you've pretty much hit all of the so in IFS, the eight C's are, I'll name them for the audience, but curiosity, compassion, clarity, connectedness, creativity, courage, confidence, and calm. And I think I heard you say at least like five or six of those words. So um yeah uh anything else come to mind around kind of these the eight c's and how you use them with clients or how you teach them even yeah I mean I think it all forms a sense of balance and so if you think about your life those are all the different ways that we manage stress and so if I can be curious instead of judgmental or shameful about this part of me, then I can I can be connected enough with it and ask questions. I can even connect with someone else. Like as a therapist, I think it takes being able to access that self-energy and ground while also acknowledging the parts within me that are showing up in those sessions and being authentic with that, like to let those patients know this is what I'm experiencing right now. And to be honest about it, that we're human too. We have parts too. And so I can be creative in therapy. We can do so many different things to process. We can write, we can do art. I'm a big fan of art therapy and sand therapy and movement getting outside, you know, and doing things that help us ground, help us get back to ourselves while also being able to connect and just understand whatever physical, emotional experience we're having in that moment. And so I think it takes a lot of courage to go to therapy first and foremost. And then there's, yeah, maybe that part of us that doesn't want to sit in silence sometimes because it's uncomfortable. And so being able to access self really does take a lot of guts and courage just to go there, just to talk to that protector because it could be defensive. It could not want us to call it out for what it's doing. It could say, you know, I've, I've gotten us through a lot you should be glad I'm doing this. I've kept you safe this whole time. And so we want to be mindful of that too. And we want to respect it. It's almost like that 
Marie Kondo concept of tidying. It's, we want to have gratitude for it and thank it for its service, even when it's no longer serving us. And we can acknowledge that right now, even though you've kept us safe in those moments, and you're right, and you've done so much for us in this moment right now, that's not serving me to be afraid of the thing that you're afraid of. Yeah. Because it's not really getting me where I want to go. And it's okay to do what I want. Like if I'm confident enough in myself to know there's something that I want, it's okay to do that. But there's a part of us that might be afraid. And maybe it's because it's protecting us from something else. We know where that comes from. It's, it's a part that may have been wounded in a way. And if it has to do with our illness, maybe it's because we were sick or we were hurt or we're comparing ourselves to someone else. In my case, my exile often thinks it's not good enough. It's not as good as the people who have those better health scores at the doctor. Or I think going to the doctor too and getting that information, you automatically start to judge and find yourself on that spectrum of where do I lie? Yes. Or you start to fear the worst. Like, am I going to die? <laughs> yes. It's so true. It's a process. Yeah. And I think what you're, you know, what you're saying is these fears are very, very valid, but not always reliable. So there's truth to like the possibility of these things that are, that we fear happening there's possibility that any of us can die at any moment. That sounds super morbid and super terrifying. But it's true. But it's true. And so when we can get in touch with that exiled part of us that that all of us fear, death is a fearful thing for, I think, almost all but of us. But it doesn't have to be, right? Right. If you learn- It really doesn't. We don't have to fear death. We... We could even lean into that. So I think what IFS teaches is we can lean in to these experiences, not in a way that they're wrong or they're bad. Like we don't have to be afraid of dying. We can embrace that. We can be grateful because sadness teaches longing and longing teaches us to seek out the things that we love. And so if we can come at it from a place of, okay, let's say, I am given three months to live. I can either look at that as an opportunity or I can, I can die today. I can be done. I can throw in the towel. And so whichever part of me is flooding at whichever moment, that's for me to name and to lean into maybe because maybe that part of me is the one that needs the most attention. The one that is so sad about it. If I could really get to know that, then I could do some work and I could figure out what am I gonna miss? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I wanna spend the most time with? What do I wanna do? But if I avoid it and I never get to know it because it's so painful, then I never give myself the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wanna like just, um state that this op this concept of opportunity you know it doesn't always feel super positive and it doesn't 
feel super easy. It's much easier to say it than it is to do. But it, what you're, what you're saying though, about like, if you allow yourself to touch it, that fear, then that's the only way you're going to know what's important to you, your values, as we talk about a lot in acceptance and commitment therapy, um, which I talk a lot about on this podcast, but yeah, it, you know, it doesn't mean it really doesn't mean that you're not still terrified of death. Like there are still going to be these scary thoughts about it. But if the fear is not in the driver's seat, then our grounded sense of self can say, these are the things that I want to do within the next three months. And these are the things that are important to me. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean there's not still grief there around like wanting more time, but it does allow you to use your time left um, in a way that gives you the greatest sense of joy and accomplishment that you that you possibly can have. We can get to know our grief. Like I, I don't shy away from talking about suicidal thoughts because I think that's clear to me that something is happening that we need to get to know. That's right even self-harm, like, I know it's uncomfortable for you to talk about, but I want to know that part of you because it's not shameful. Like, the grief part, and I think for a lot of people with illness to feel this way, it's, it coincides with depression. It's, there's a lot of hopelessness there. Am I ever going to get better? Am I ever, is this ever going to go away? I think I had a day last week it was such a bad day. And I, I rarely have days like that anymore because I do have a pretty good sense of control now with my like physical and emotional state as it pertains to managing my type one. But I had a day that was just crazy. And I was, my blood sugar was 300 plus like all night long. My obviously had a bad pump site tubing was kinked. I wasn't getting any insulin that night. You feel miserable. You feel lethargic. You can't even have, you don't have the motivation to even treat and make it better. I, it took someone else, my husband forcing me to go and change my site before you have any kind of, the whole day was ruined. I, it was a wash. And so I think that day and the day after I just said <laughs> my husband I wish I could just have one day one day when I don't have to think about this illness just one day that's all I want and then the next day I went to a support group for type one and I felt a lot better because I do believe that connection is the key to longevity and it's a big way that I access self it's why I'm a therapist because I love talking to people and I that's one of my coping strategies. I reach out and I talk to people and that's what I encourage a lot of my clients to do. And so I've had clients who've started support groups for their illness, if it didn't exist, if they didn't feel like they really had anyone to talk to about it. Because I think you just have those days of grief. You have those days that are like, this sucks. And that part of you is flooded because you don't feel good. Yeah, I think this really exemplifies what I teach my clients very, very often. Um, this statement, a blanket statement is surely debatable, but the way that I practice is that our thoughts 
a sensation happens first in our body and then our thoughts arise and like Like that bottom up yeah yeah and your example of like my blood sugar was through the roof and then I had all these really awful thoughts or non-motivation like irritability and we start working with how to change your thoughts your bottom part of your body your sensory system is gonna say hold on you don't get it so let me up the ante and probably make your blood sugar even higher because you're not getting it and I need to show you what I need so yeah and and so I practice from acceptance and commitment therapy as well as somatic experiencing and it's all I mean the act can be pretty top down sometimes but um I work bottom up which is like and I that's why I love your body yes yeah listen to your body IFS is all about no bad parts like every single thing serves a purpose even if we don't quite get it yet so I love the example that you shared because it just exemplifies all of that yeah and I use the concept of connecting the dots connect the dots between your mind and your body because if your body is sending you this signal let's figure out what your brain is trying to communicate with you what do we need to figure out what do we need to get to know because your body keeps the score so we have to explore that and it's okay if it's uncomfortable most emotions are it's unfortunate that most of our experiences are uncomfortable versus comfortable because otherwise then you wouldn't know to learn you wouldn't know to make a change and so it takes those experiences to recognize what is a positive one you know, and so I can congratulate myself now. I used to never be able to take praise or be excited if I was doing well with managing the illness, but I'm able to like even share with other people like, hey, this is how I'm doing. What were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, I love that. Um, because I mean, this goes, I know, um, I think Brene Brown kind of popularized this concept, but um, yeah, if you can't feel your negative, I don't remember exactly how she said it, but if you can't feel your negative emotions, you really can't feel your positive emotions either. So if all of your negative kind of exiled emotions are still exiled, then you can't really share your joy either when, when you are feeling good. And again, we can take a cognitive approach to that. Like, well, how can you, you know, appreciate that you're feeling good and blah, blah, blah. But, but again, like there is a reason why you can't. So let's work from that bottom up. Um, and I did lose what I was going to say, but that's okay. Cause this was a good, this was a good place to, to land on. Yeah. I would say, I would say to anyone who's experiencing something uncomfortable, let's explore that. Yeah. If you want to, but if that protector does not allow us to, then that's where we have to start. Because if we're experiencing this intense, overwhelming anxiety, this physical discomfort that is keeping us from going there, then we're not going to go there. Right. It's warning us to not go to the island. And so it's too uncomfortable. And it's saying what you're experiencing now is nothing compared to what you're going to feel if you go to that place of pain. Yeah. If you go to that wounded island, you're going to be so much worse. It's the reason why so many people avoid going to therapy, right? So it's, the idea behind it is 
if I can discuss that with the protector, okay, well, how can we help you feel more calm so that we can feel better? We can help the wound heal and resolve something that it might want to resolve. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to keep existing in that way. And you're going to keep feeling like this isn't sustainable. And you're going to keep having that eating disorder. Or you're going to keep using that substance. Or you're going to keep dissociating or isolating, whatever it is. You're going to keep cutting. Yeah. I even, it knows. I even believe it contributes to more flare-ups with chronic pain. Yes. Things like that. You're going to keep feeling stuck. Yeah. Feeling stuck. That's a good one. Um, in somatic experiencing, we talk a lot about titrating and it's what you're talking about. So we, we want to, if your protector part comes up and says, no, this is way too big. I can't do this before therapy. You're when you feel that you're like, okay, okay. I got you suppress, 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 like manage, manage, manage. And we're good. We don't feel it, but we also aren't working towards improving or like manage, like properly managing that when we in somatic experiencing we titrate and we move a little bit towards that exile and as soon as it says stop we stop but we don't run away from it we just slowly say okay okay I hear you I got you let's move to something that's a little bit more comfortable but we're going to come back to this and every time we come back we hope to get a little bit closer and a little bit closer Mm -hmm. until eventually the firefighter is like okay you're not trying to get rid of me like, so I don't have to actually be super defensive. Um, yeah, I think just... the protector is often afraid that it's going to be eradicated, that yeah. it's no longer going to have a purpose or a role or who's going to keep you safe, right? And so I think in IFS, the biggest work on the front end is working with that system manager, that protector instinct that is pretty defensive at first, doesn't want to let us get close, doesn't want to open up, doesn't trust, is afraid of feeling uncomfortable, is afraid of feeling pain. And so the biggest work for the therapist in IFS is to get to know that part and to come at it from a place of compassion. I'm not trying to dismiss your fear I want to validate your fear but maybe is there a way that I could rationalize some of them yeah you know what are your fears tell me what they are so that we can we can help you feel less afraid feel less fearful because when you're so fearful I feel my heart rate increasing I feel my blood sugar going up or down I feel more pain I feel higher blood pressure, you know, whatever it is that you're having in that physical sensation and experience, and maybe it'll understand that, okay, I see that I might, I'm, I, I could probably let up a little bit, but here's, here's why I'm afraid, you know, here's, here's one thing you need to know. You don't want to know these things. Yeah, I think the my biggest go-to when working with clients around that concept is really modeling 
I'm glad you 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 mentioned like the increased heart rate and you know when that starts to happen and you start to see your client fidget more or look down or these like nonverbal cues that they are starting to get anxious or fearful of what's happening in the room it's my job to hold that space in a way that because as humans we tend to feel each other's especially those of us with immense empathy and you know highly sensitive people we feel each other's emotions so much that if a client is experiencing a rapid heart rate, my heart might start beating faster. So it's my job as a therapist to feel that and allow for it and then start to calm it down. And then my client, even if they don't know it cognitively or consciously, they are watching me regulate myself and that's co-regulation. And that I think is one of the biggest healing things in therapy um and it's just something that we don't really have a lot of words for but it's really powerful yeah yeah to access to model sense of self in dick schwartz's words is a big part of the presence of the therapist in ifs even though it's challenging when you do have intense feelings when you can internalize everyone else's emotions and feel it through the screen yeah yeah we've we've gotten a really really good um discussion in so far I'm curious if there's anything else that you feel like we haven't touched on that you want to touch on or anything come to mind I mean I think a big thing to to also give credit to is that the part in each of us that is critical I think every single person has a part that is criticizing another one so it doesn't like something that they're doing and that can create a polarization too which can create extreme anxiety and so in IFS the polarization could be this intense anxiety and then another one that just thinks that is so irrational like what's wrong with you that's shaming the other one for doing that yes or maybe it's between the manager and the firefighter like how could you do this to yourself let's say you're harming or you're so worthless like you're just all the worst possible things you could say to another person that you you actually care about so imagine two family members not getting along but it's because they really care about each other that they're having this conflict and so when two parts are at odds, that's when we often see that extreme level of anxiety that exists. And so polarizations are really common and something that's important for every therapist who's practicing IFS to understand. And so it's almost like a cycle that exists between the two. It's like, who's, who's winning right yeah. now? Yeah. It's like dissonance. Totally. Yeah. And over time, our goal is to, just like we do in, in family therapy or couples therapy, it's, it feels like we're so at odds, but really, if we can look at that energy as being on the same team and, and fighting towards the same goal, instead of at each other, as if we're on two different teams, then we get a lot of, a lot of peace from that. And a lot of reward from that. Cause now you get to live this life with support and connection 
Um, but yeah. Yeah, sometimes you have to make a big mess in order to clean it up. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to leave listeners with or kind of, yeah, some kind of piece of advice or something that you just want to leave people with? I think if there's anything that I could leave listeners with, it's it's to give yourself grace. I think grace is my word for 2023. I'm starting a new tradition where I come up with a word for each year in the new year and so grace was the word that I chose for myself just to be more graceful with myself so I think that has a lot to do with compassion if we're going to use one of the C's but I think it can be so many different things it can be creative to think outside the box to not feel so stuck so give yourself grace if you if you are stuck, like if you are experiencing, we call it an, an IFS blended. Like if you feel blended with a part and let's say they're in the driver's seat of the car, in naming that, be non-judgmental, be supportive. Just try, just try to acknowledge it and try to do so with grace because I think we can get so caught up and what's happening that we forget that you know, this is just a part of you and it's okay. And it's okay that that's happening. And maybe we just wanna use one of our tools or one of the resources that's available. Yeah. Grace is one of my that's... favorite words ever. Really? <laughs> yes. I, and I, I just defined it last week to someone as, what does it define us? <laughs> yeah, it's a mix of kindness, compassion, and patience. Oh, I love yeah, it's true. So I love well, this has been really fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Yes. Um yeah. and where can people find you? So people can find me at emilyklinecounseling.com, licensed in Georgia. I do virtual and in person in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I love talking to you. Yeah, this was great. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Bye. Thank you. Bye. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.